This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington, and today we're talking to Diane, and I'll let her say her last name in a moment, but she was a financial advisor to the very wealthy people, and now you teach over at CU Boulder, and we're going to dig into all of these different areas, but can you give us an idea of the scope? How rich were these people? Super rich. So to become a client, in essence, you had to have $10 million of assets. And the range was between 10 million to above $100 million. So my business partner and I together managed more than a billion dollars. And these were household names. I, I know you can't say them, but these were people we would recognize. You worked in Los Angeles, correct? Yeah, and I also work remotely in Colorado, um, managing accounts really all over the country um, because my clients would move, and also they introduced me to other people. So, yeah, um, they were either senior executives of really prominent companies, um, entertainers, musicians, the wide, wide range. That's so crazy. So obviously you can't say who they are. What kind of stuff can you share and what kind of things can you not share? So I have to say that nothing I say if we talk about investing is I'm just providing all this for educational purposes. Um, I could give you the name of one client because I'm in the forward of her book, which would be Carly Simon. Um, but other than that, I can't really, I have to protect the name and privacy of, of my clients. Very cool. So how did you start getting these folks as clients and how did you meet them and did you get to meet them personally and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, when you talk about money, it's a very personal thing. So I had really great relationships. So I met almost all of my clients with the exception of one in person. Um, and on a regular basis, how did I get them to begin with? Literally cold calling. Like I didn't have any great connections. And what I tried to do, I, I work in a commodity business, right? You can buy the same investment products anywhere. So what I tried to do is differentiate myself along with my partner, um, providing real value. And so once you do that, and I com we combine together investment advice, estate planning advice, and tax advice. And if you listen really carefully, really carefully to someone, um, we were able to build an amazing business. I'm going to go off the script a little bit here. You always hear these horror stories in the media about, it usually it goes to, it relates to sports stars, but there have been some movie stars in the news lately, how they screw up their finances. And I'm always curious about that. I suspect part of it is that's just not something they learn about. And with that said, I don't think any of us most of us don't know about money, but then they're probably so focused on their career or whatever. I don't know. I'm not even sure where I'm going with this question, but do you think they are less educated? And maybe with that, they're more prone to have people take advantage of their this big moving target. And if they don't have the knowledge, then they're especially ripe to be screwed over by someone. So I think you hit on all the main issues, right? Um, no one is really educated. Very, very few people are educated in money. 
Like it's a taboo subject, which is crazy. Um, there is an episode on ESPM 3030 called Broke, which is worth watching because it's about all these amazing sports stars and you know, famous, famous people who went broke um, and because they weren't given the right skills. Rich people have the same problems that you and I do, right? They they don't know how to like control consumption, for example. It's just the number of zeros after their name changes, right? So the scale changes, but the issues that you and I face are the same. And one thing that I've heard is, uh, let's say a movie star gets paid, whatever, 20 million, and they don't consider all the different people that get a cut. So their manager, uh, some other agency, taxes, like all these other pieces that they don't consider. Maybe they don't have a good business manager or general manager to help them understand that. Is that accurate or have I just heard that through? Um, it is accurate that managers take a significant cut, taxes, all these other kinds of, of uh, expenses associated with running, in this case, I'm a famous Hollywood entertainer. But they still are making, like I have a client who is making at more than $500,000 an episode for a famous TV show. So even after the cut that the manager takes, they still have a lot of money. Um, but yet, they don't know what to do with it. Or as Carl was alluding to, they also don't know how to invest it or what to do. And there's a lot of peer pressure on them to live the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. Have you have either of you ever listened to the Freakonomics podcast? Mm -hmm. I love that one. Yeah, it's great. I was listening to it yesterday, and there was an episode about NFL long snappers. And all an, an NFL long snapper does is grab the ball and throw it to the person who either the punter or the person who sets it up for the kicker. And that's all they do. And I think the best one ever was Patrick Manley, who did it for 16 years and always did it correct. He never screwed it up. And it's kind of... If you don't know, if you're a good long snapper, no one will ever hear your name because you're just out there doing your job and it's not glamorous. But they were interviewing one guy on there and he was like, yeah, as a long snapper, we don't make that much money. I'll probably make about $1.2 over the course of my career. And if I'm lucky, I want to be able to do this for like 16 or 17 years. I want to beat the record. And that actually you said cracked me up. He said, with that amount of money, I think I'll be able to live for at least a little bit without having to get a job. And in my mind, I'm like, shit, that's like $20 million. Like, uh, you, you need to have Diane or someone else manage your money if you can't figure out how to make that work for the rest of your life. But with that said, there's probably other pressures too. I was thinking of the lowly long snapper who makes $1.2 versus the quarterback making $40 million. And maybe that guy feels the need to drive the same car and live the same life and has that pressure. I, I have no idea what's going on with that guy's mind. I'm just speculating here. Yeah, but, but that happens not only in sports, but almost every every industry, almost every person, like no matter how much we have, it's not enough, you know? And so we always want more. We always want to keep up with the Joneses and it takes a real discipline to control spending, maybe not have the fanciest car like everybody else on the sports team might have. We're getting off script a little bit here, but on that note, did you ever counsel people on that? I know you were an advisor and managed their money, but did they ever come to you and say, "Hey, I want to do this, or I want to buy this car or this house. Do you think this is a good idea? Or? All the time, all the time. And so two examples. One, I had a client who sold an educational business and uh, she called me and said, hey, can I buy like the new version of the VW Bug when that came out? 
like, okay, this car might cost $15,000. You're worth $20 million. Yes, go enjoy yourself. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, though, sometimes I help clients stop spending too much money. So I had one client, they were worth more than $100, sorry, more than $100 million. But their liquid portfolio, the amount that they could use to support themselves was about $20 million. But their burn rate was $200,000 a month for two people. I mean, you can do the math. They were spending too much. And so my business partner and I had to convince them, hey, this spend rate is not sustainable if you don't want to force yourself to sell assets prematurely. Wow. Where does 200000 a month go to? So it's so interesting because I don't think I could spend that much. But um, they were the best dressed couple I've I've met. They had a full-time uh, like person who did their ironing or laundry. Uh, so there's never a wrinkle on them. Uh, they had all kinds of support staff. Usually that's the big one. You know, a cook full-time cleaner, in this case, someone who helped them with their laundry. That adds up, gardeners. Wow. Doug, if you could have someone on your support staff, what would you hire someone? Like if you had to hire one person or you got one free person, who would it be or what would they do for you? I'll come back to that. That's a that's a big question. And we didn't prep on that at all. So I, <laughs> I, I, handle, I handle a lot of stuff on my own, but uh, I enjoy most of the things that I do. So, okay. Yeah. What about you? Do you have one on the top of your, off the top of your head? Maybe auto maintenance because I, I hate pay, paying people to do it because it's so expensive and I know how to do it myself. So I think I should do it myself to save the money. So if I had some guy to yeah. do my brakes and change the radiator and all that shit. You do. It's a fucking mechanic. You could just go hire him. It's super easy. Like that's a that's a solvable problem. <laughs> okay, let, let's get back to our outline. It looks like the next question is mine. Um, what financial goals do the ultra wealthy have? Everybody wants more, right? Doesn't matter how much money you have. So if you're worth twenty million, a hundred million, anywhere in between, a hundred thousand dollars. Everybody wants more. And so one of the things I have to convince them to do is understand that more comes with risk. And you want to frame it in terms of um, what's more painful to you, losing when you could pay for everything that your heart desires, losing or missing a little bit of upside. So everybody wants more. Over time, I try to convince them about wealth preservation. Most of my clients came from super, super humble backgrounds. You know, only one client inherited their um, money. Apart because I just find that a super interesting profile to work with people who actually created it. And so they've been super poor and then they hit the lottery in essence they, they by creating a business and selling it. So when you've been poor and you're rich, you really prefer being rich. <laughs> Um, it is easier. And uh, so so I'd say wealth preservation. And then I guess those are the two main ones that, that people struggle with. You know, either I want to grow or wealth preservation, both. Okay, so a follow-up. I think most of the people in the fire crowd are probably, I don't want to sound like a judgmental asshole, but <laughs> maybe a little bit better, Justin, because it took us longer to earn the money and maybe we appreciate it. A little bit more, but I don't know. Uh, what would you say to someone who came into a bunch of money? Because I suspect, 
I read Matthew McConaughey's book, and it seems like he was just this uh, kid running around in college, and then he got these parts, and it happened very quickly. He went from zero to hero overnight, and I'm not sure. I'm sure a lot of these stars have to grind it out for a long time, too. So maybe the story I just told is not true. But how would you counsel someone who comes into a lot of money quickly? What would you tell them to do so they don't screw it up? So I want to go back to most of them work super, super hard. They sacrifice years of their life. Even uh, this one of my very famous entertainers, he did not become super, super successful in a household name, probably until his mid-40s. Uh, so they've traded off a lot of time and hard work. Um, what would I advise them to do? Yeah, to come up with a financial plan. Like, what are your life priorities? You have tremendous resources now. What do you want to get accomplished in your life? Do you want to, uh, you know, help some family members or or friends or other people? Do you want to help a charity? Like, do you want to work again? Do you not want to work again? And then based on your goals and your risk profile, we build a plan together to accomplish those goals. Do you think you get through to most people and help steer them away from any potential disasters? Yeah, pretty much. Sure. I mean, every once in a while, someone comes up with an unusual investment idea. If they're going to hire me, though, pretty much they were hiring my business partner and me to help run their portfolios, so to protect their assets and grow them. Um, but, you know, occasionally they come up with a crazy idea. Uh, some of them want to like almost uh, things like restaurants, things like um, movies, um, a few crazy investment schemes. We we try to um, tell our clients not to do those kinds of things, but it's their money ultimately. So sometimes they do. We just minimize the downside when we do. Do you have any like wild, crazy stories or anything where it's like, oh, that, I can't believe like maybe one of the bad investment schemes or something? Yeah. Uh, my business partner and I were meeting with a, a very uh, famous client and I'm going to protect his identity. And he's very, very, very intelligent and very good at math. And so we were meeting with him early on in our relationship and he was showing us returns. We had the bulk of his assets, but before he met with us or had invested with us, he had one alternative investment, right? And it was a hedge fund on paper and notice my words on paper, because when he would meet with us, he would show us the returns and good market or bad market. It had very even returns, about 10% per year. Didn't matter if the market went up or down. I think I see where this is going, but go on. His story does not end well because we said, hey, let's call this person Mr. Smith. This does not meet our sniff test. It just, the investment was not behaving rationally and there was no detail at all on the statement. Now, for various reasons, uh, this client, decided in a few years, we didn't add anything to it, just kept monitoring it and, you know, kept on going up 10% about per year, very little variation. And this client ultimately was involved in a very large Ponzi scheme. And, the, you know, this client, luckily, um, he is still extremely well off. 
Um, he got involved in this uh, investment because some of his friends who were board members, who are well-known like everybody wants, right, uh, told him about this great investment. And it, it just didn't end well. And so one of my, my takeaways is if it sounds too good to be true, generally it is. There's just money is generally, there are easy ways to make money by starting early and investing early and letting your money work for you. But if it's a get rich quick scheme, or if it's uh, behaving in a way that doesn't seem perfectly rational, usually it's not a real product. Was that Bernie Madoff then, or do you not want to comment on that? So I, this was not a Bernie Madoff, but I did have another client who came to me after losing money with Madoff. So, Yeah, isn't it interesting? The lies we'll tell ourselves when it comes to greed, right? You don't want to believe there's anything nefarious going on because you're getting rich from it. And I think we see a little bit of that. And it's not an outright scam, but with some of this crypto stuff, you see these people online, this coin's going to be whatever, and... Okay, you can tell yourself whatever you want, but there's a good chance this doesn't end well for you. Yeah, and we spend more time, believe it or not, buying a new car than and figuring out like the pros and cons and what model and features than you do for most people picking an investment. And there's something wrong with that. And so um, there's a little bit of fear and greed that uh, I think sometimes influences people. Someone else is making money and you do too. Like it's part of our group behavior, I think. Yeah. And one thing I'm curious about, so in the FI community, a lot of us aim towards uh, real estate, for example, not not me, I don't like real estate, but others aim towards index funds and keep it fairly simple. So can you tell us a little bit about how you structure maybe some of the investments and you can make up an example if you want to, or however is easy to sort of illustrate because it, it can be very complicated, I'm sure, especially when you get much larger amounts of money than I've uh, even thought about thinking about. <laughs> so yeah, how, how do you how do you structure that? So first of all, for a wealthy person, um, one of the benefits they have over a lot of other people is their portfolios ultimately are big enough that we can generate enough income from the portfolio through, you know, let's say real estate, fixed income, other kinds of bonds, other kinds of investments, so that they become neutral. They don't like it when the market goes down, but they're more, they don't, their emotional biases don't kick in as much if you know that you have a steady stream of income um, that will support you. People in the fire movement do this in part through side hustles, right? If you have more than one job or more than one source of income, you're insulating yourself somewhat from the market volatility. So we usually start with how much money do you need? How do we design a portfolio that will help support you with that? And then how do we use financial instruments to help grow your assets. So for the average person out there, um, I love index funds. There are a couple great books I'll recommend. Uh, one is The Little uh, the little Book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle, or he goes by Jack Bogle. Fantastic book. Alan Roth wrote another one called How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street. And then J.L. Collins, who I know has been on here, wrote an absolutely fantastic book called A Simple Path to Wealth. For those listeners who are serious about this subject, I would totally read all three books because they have great advice and they teach you that, you know, indexing um, or what's called passive investing. It's not as exciting or as exotic as picking single stocks, but it's a more predictable way 
to um, to almost tip the odds, like the investing odds in your favor, which is really what I try to help my clients do. So in my practice, I actually use many of the same financial instruments that uh, proponents of the FIRE movement use. So I love ETFs and indexes. Wealthy people also have access to other um, financial investments like alternative investments, private uh, equity, um, hedge funds, et cetera. Um, but you can still build a great net worth without access to some of those investments. Are most clients happy with an index fund? It's not, uh, we all know how dead effective it is, but it's not super sexy either. Are most people happy with uh, the return of an index fund? Indeed, because the thing is, and this is part of the education process, uh, I started to work at Goldman Sachs in the late night. 1990s. I know I don't look a day over 56, which is how old I am. <laughs> and um, what we noticed, my business partner and I, like we had access to the best and the brightest that Wall, uh, that Wall Street has to offer at Goldman. But what we've noticed with the performance when we were doing our performance reviews, a few managers would outperform, a few would be kind of close to the benchmark, maybe a little bit less, and, and many would be underperforming. And so we would have these reviews and we helped took our job super seriously and we'd fire the bad managers because bad manager, you're underperforming. But this kept happening for several years in a row. And thus the miracle of Jack Bogle, who really has done more for the average investor than almost anyone out there. And we learned about his investment approach. And then we used the market correction between 2000 to 2003 to convince our clients that a passive approach um, nobody wants to be average, especially if you're, you know, really famous or you're running a company. But an average approach, you're really outperforming ninety percent of all of the other investors. That's a pretty good group to be in. And uh, by doing, by educating on them about that, by being tax efficient, and then also helping them with estate planning and other kinds of techniques, we provided really significant value. The bottom line is I wanted to invest my client's money as if it was my own. And so if I was investing my own money passively, clearly that was the right thing to do for clients. And so, yeah, it isn't sexy, but having a lot of money can be sexy over time. Like, and that's what you want to do. It helps you win the game. And that's what I'm here to help clients do. Or I was, I'm not doing it now. That's awesome. One of the things I always enjoyed hearing was Warren Buffett talk about how intelligence is not a factor in how well you're going to do in the stock market. And he's actually said it's it's a detriment because th these hyper-intelligent people think they can beat everything and then they end up not. So Warren Buffett always says temperament is the most important quality. Yeah, he has a quote, something like investing is um, easy. No, it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, there's a book I'd recommend on this that's fantastic. Carla, I think you've read it, The Psychology of Money. It's fantastic for anyone who wants to read it. It's uh, by Morgan Housel. And it alludes to this subject. Um, and so the temperament does make it difficult. Buffett also, in his uh, two, two important things, in his annual meeting, he actually recognized Jack Bogle for helping like uh, more Americans out there than almost anyone else. Uh, super duper, one of my heroes. And then the bulk of his estate 
is going to be what he's not giving away to charity, which is actually the bulk of it, but for his heirs and his wife, he has given instructions in his will that 90% of it should be in a passive S&P 500 index or something like that, some kind of passive index. Amazing. What else can you, like, what better proof can I give you that this is a great strategy? That is sexy. Yeah, it's super amazing. I remember being at Berkshire Hathaway when when Jack Bogle was there and you actually recognized him and Jack Bogle stood up and the crowd clapped, gave him a, I think, outstanding innovation. Yeah, so this is funny because I have met like super famous people and um, and so my business partner and most of the people like my staff, like they get sometimes a little bit flustered, you know, when they're meeting someone. I just don't care. Like, okay, you put on your pants the same way as I do. No big deal. Except I did get to meet Jack Bogle uh, personally once. And it was one of the few times I really like got super duper flustered because <laughs> here's someone who did so much good in the world. Um, I also have to endorse his organization. It's called the Bogleheads, uh, bogleheads.org. Their website is a little bit clunky um, because it's run by, like, it's been in existence, I don't know, maybe since around 2000. It's a group of fans um, who uh, of Jack and his philosophy, and then they get together, and some of their advice is some of the best advice I think I can find on the, on the internet. Amazing. Cool. What did you learn from this career? Uh, so is that, what did I learn personally or what did I learn from my clients? How about both? Okay. So one of the most surprising things to me is that number one, um, rich people aren't really any happier than you or me. In fact, I would say that they're less happy because, you know, we always think, oh, if I had this new toy, this new iPhone, this new car, suddenly... I'm going to be super happy. But the thing is, is that there's a period of what's called hedonic adaptation, which means that you just get used to that new house, new car, new whatever. And suddenly, when you can buy anything or almost anything, you just don't have like, it just, there's this initial euphoria. And then you have to get up in the morning and say, okay, what now? What's my new hit? What's my new dream? So that was really shocking because I thought that, wow, you can buy anything in the world, you're going to be happier. And uh, and I would say that that is generally not the case. Um, I'd say what makes people happy are a sense of purpose and human connection. And so when I've had clients sell a business, and this has been a child, a baby of theirs, there's a period of euphoria, and then they have to try to reinvent themselves and find something else. And sometimes their success comes at huge costs. Um, sometimes because they've worked so hard, they've sacrificed some of the human relationships. And um, some of my clients, not all, are, are a little lonely. You know, we're all jealous. We all want, everyone wants something that someone else has. So, you know, I have one client uh, and their house is one of the most beautiful houses I've ever been to. Um, when I first visited this family, their gym alone, it was on Pebble Beach, and their gym alone was, let's say, 4,000 square feet. They're its own building. And I was living with my husband and two children in a 1,350-square-foot uh, townhouse in L.A. And um, the patriarch and matriarch of the family were very jealous you know, because their next door neighbors had bought and sold like several different 
uh, internet companies or technology companies. And so they were worth more. Now, this family was worth a lot. <laughs> so I was just surprised. I was like, wow, like no matter what we have, it's part of the human condition. We always want more. Um, lonely. Some of my clients are lonely. So I went to a different family. Uh, the Both the patriarch and the matriarch of the family ultimately passed away. They were entrepreneurs and super successful people. And I was one of 10 people invited, my business partner and I, to the funeral. Gosh, I just like that broke my heart because I, this family would not be one of the top 10 people in my life. And uh, so one of the ways we get around that is by helping clients find a sense of meaning and purpose after they, um, after they either sell their business or decide to stop working as an entertainer. And one of the ways you could do that is for me, teaching right? Um, and helping people. That's just an example of, of what anyone could do uh, and helping the next generation. Another way is giving away charitably, right? My husband and I support a lot of different uh, charities because it's, we have been so lucky and so fortunate. So I can't help but recommend another book. You could tell I'm a nerd. Will McCaskill wrote a book, um, it's not the life you can say. That's Peter Sing Singer. Uh, hang on. Doing Good Better, which I actually think um, uh, Pete recommended as well. Gosh, it just is so powerful to realize like the good you can do to either help people you know or sometimes people you don't know as well um, who weren't given all the amazing things we have been given in life. So, Isn't that crazy? Someone on Pebble Beach jealous of their next-door neighbors because they had an extra who knows what, but you're living on Pebble Beach. You're the 1% of the 1% I mean, of the 1%. That house was just amazing. And, um, yeah, just we would go visit um, with this one client. And really, you know, they would come in with like us, like a, uh, it was like the game of Clue, right? Where someone comes in, at, like not all wealthy people live like this, but with like this sterling silver, um, like cart with mm -hmm. fancy china and stuff like that. You know, I was always really worried because I'm a klutz and I was thinking, oh my God, I'm just going to spill something on this couch that's more than my entire house. And we would visit this family, I think sometimes just for companionship, right? They were lonely. Is that sad? I've got a couple things to follow up with this. And one of the things I admire about you, Diane, is your relationship with your children. I think I talked to you once when COVID was going on and maybe a different time before that. And you were so happy. I think one of your children had come home from college. Maybe. I know what a gift it was. I'm sorry about COVID, but wow, I got another five months with my son. Priceless. Yeah. And you were talking another time you told me about how you talk on the phone, I think almost every day with, I don't know if it's the same child or the other one, or maybe it's both, but very frequently, it's clear that you have a very solid and good relationship with your kids, like top 1%. You're a one percenter as far as relationships, and what's more important than that? I am just the luckiest person. Um, and really, this is really the trade-off that some of my clients uh, faced, where they put so much time and energy. You have to decide what's important, what gives you meaning. And um, sometimes in the the cost of becoming so wealthy or so famous comes at the expense of either your marriage, um, your relationship with your children, 
or other relationships. So my kids and my husband, gosh, I actually do talk to my kids, both of them. I, I, I'm trying to let them grow up, so I don't really initiate most of the calls. But what a gift. Like, at, we, when you guys, I'm, I'm older than you, probably older than almost all your listeners. And as you get older, you start to realize that time, time is one of your most important assets, and it's a diminishing asset. And so time with my children is just magical. It doesn't mean that we don't get, uh, have fights or anything, um, but that is part of the legacy that my husband and I will leave. And they're just amazing people. And as they, they both go to the same college now. And shout out to Lauren and David. I love you guys with all my heart. Um, but when I sometimes hear like my son giving my daughter advice or vice versa, um, you just feel like, okay, I don't want to die tomorrow. But if I did, like I've, I've gotten something good done with my life. So. There's one more thing I want to say before we close up this part of the interview. And that is I spoke to your class which I do, we'll get into Diane's uh, secondary career as a teacher, if you call that a career. But I remember one of the students asked, asked me, he's like, yeah, I've heard more money causes more pro more problems. Is this true? And I thought it was a pretty great question. And my answer to that would be, well, it depends. If you let it cause more problems, if you let it complicate your life, it definitely will. And it's not just about the, you mentioned the hedonic adaptation about buying stuff and then getting bored of it, or it doesn't mean stuff to you anymore. It's if you've got five houses, you got to take care of all that. And that's mental bandwidth. And now you have to spend your time either managing these properties or managing people. And it's, you could be spending your, your valuable time doing other things. So I don't know. I think no matter how much money I personally had, I would probably always manage myself and I wouldn't get crazy. Although who knows if I get a hundred million bucks, I might just yeah. Go, the thing is, is that who knows? We don't really know because we don't have like the same resources, and sometimes like like things change. Uh, life is unpredictable. But I would say generally, I completely agree with what you say. Said um, that money brings a lot more responsibility. Like, so let's just say you don't want to buy things. Well, then, then and you don't want to give it away to your you know family. So then you have a responsibility. What are you going to do with it? Do you want to give it charitably? Wonderful. How do you give it charitably? What's the best way? What are the best organizations? How do I wrap my arms around that? Also, sometimes when you get wealthy and people know it, like the our clients, uh, my business partner and I, like their names were often household names. So then like your friends and family, sometimes, you know, you want to help them. But it becomes this, a lot of pressure on the donor. Like, okay, how much is enough and how much is too much, right? Um, and do you feel bad? Like you want to help people, but you also don't want to be in a situation where you're constantly being asked um, to help different either organizations, um, friends, family, and then possessions, like houses. You know, uh, my husband and I this year bought a, uh, a vacation home, which we're using uh, to rent out um, Airbnb. So it's a partly an investment. Um, it does add a layer of complexity. It adds a lot of joy. But a lot of the things we have also add complexity. I have a couple uh, follow-ups to hit, you know, threads that have basically been through many of the answers. So you talked about people having a purpose and sometimes you try to guide them 
to a purpose, maybe especially after they maybe sold a business and now they have a big void in their time yeah. and in their life. How do you bring that up in, you know, you're a financial advisor, so that's more life advice. So how, how do you bring that up? And maybe you can tell us about a time that that worked out pretty well, or maybe sometimes people don't want to hear that. Everybody wants to hear it. And so when you, everybody, we all have the same problems. Like, why am I here? What am I trying to get done with my life? And as you get to be my age, what am I going to leave behind? And so it's very easy to have those conversations because money is like such a personal thing. So you learn about all of the good in people's families, all the pressures and all the bad. And I think the more careful you are about listening, the better the financial advice. Most personal goals cost money. And uh, so if I understand what's truly important, if I can really listen carefully, I can really provide hopefully life-changing value. Um, so they, that might be a host of different things. Like if you want to work, what kinds of things you're interested in, what kinds of things you're passionate about, um, and then and then what would the, be the steps that you can take. I'm not a career coach, so that's not what I'm trying to do. But you generally, having a lot of money means you have a lot of resources to accomplish amazing good in this world. And you probably have a lot of talents. Like, how can you share that? What else can you do with your life? Um, and that ultimately, more than the money, is what people care about. So... Just a quick funny story with this. My business partner and I, we were working at Goldman Sachs and uh, Maryland tired us away. And one of the things they said to us was, hey, you know, you're going to bring your clients and you could name your own team. You could have your own brand. And you know, we are very low profile people. So we're like, name our own team. Like, what are we going to call it? So one of the two of us came up with the name Chameleon Advisors. We'll be whoever you want us to be. Why? Because each person is different. Each goal is different. So I don't talk about everything. The conversations I have with each of my clients isn't the same. It's based on what's important to you, the end client. So it was easy um, for us, ultimately, we felt, to get business because we really cared. We we're trying to do a good job. We listened. Okay. Uh, why don't you tell us what you're working on? And I know you've got a couple of different projects, a website and a potential speaking career. Yeah. Well, so I spent the bulk of my career making rich people richer. And I had this epiphany that my friends, my family members, I started to teach at CU just for fun to begin with. And the other professors, people, even if they're really, really intelligent, don't know the first thing about how to manage their own money. And so uh, I reinvented myself and decided to spend the remainder of my career um, helping people. Like my job now, my purpose is to make finance simple, easy to understand, and easy to implement. So I started a website, DiFi, and that really came uh, as a result of my teaching. My students learn a lot with me in 16 weeks, but I can't teach you everything I know in 16 weeks. And so what I'm trying to do is give them trustworthy advice, uh, either before, during, after my class, or really anyone, right? Uh, how do I understand simple techniques about personal finance that are life-changing? So that's why I started DiFi. And then I also, I love doing speaking engagements. Uh, so I recently gave a speech to uh, a group of retinal surgeons. And, you know, here are super, super, super smart people. 
great credentials who, again, have the same problems as you and I do, right? What do I do with my money? I know how to make it now in their case. How, how do I think about it? Like, how do I set up my retirement? Um, what kind of investments do I pick? How do I manage risk? How much insurance do I need? All kinds of things. What's the invest investment of today, et cetera? Okay. Back to the website. Is that DIFI.com? Yeah, it's going to be DIFI Inc. because DIFI.com was taken. Uh, it's always that way. What is DIFI.com? So uh, it's either Di a lot of people call me Di instead of Diane and Fi for either financial independence or or um, finance. So. Okay. So DiFi.inc will be your website. Yes. When do you plan on launching? Uh, this week. Okay. So it'll be up by the time this episode airs. Yeah. Awesome. And if people want to hire you to give a talk, should they contact you through there? What's the yeah, best way? it's right. Again, right. Link on uh, on the website. And also my main purpose is really to level the playing field, to provide the same advice I used to, uh, to wealthy people, uh, for people to implement on their own. And uh, so the vast majority of the resources on, on the website, except if you want me to do a speaking engagement or for free, okay. because I want to help as many people as I can. Yeah. Isn't it pretty amazing, just in closing, that the same, much of the same advice that applies to us who aren't super rich is also applicable to the ultra wealthy. It's the same index funds and the same temperament that works for both people. I don't think there's many things in life that work like that. Indeed. Actually, like institutions, the Yale Endowment, like Harvard, <laughs> lots of like um, insurance companies, uh, like foundations, they also are doing index funds. Because it works. The evidence is there. And uh, so, so we really should put a lot of power in the hands of individual investors. That's awesome. So, so Diane, we're going to have you again. We're going to have you on again soon to talk about your second career as a teacher to college students. Awesome. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five, and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person, so the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using, and that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer. This show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. All right, Diane, is there anything that you're looking forward to now that we've hit a couple days of warm weather? Oh, my goodness. It is gorgeous outside, so I can't help but be in a good mood. Hiking, biking, anything outside. I bloom in this kind of weather. I love it.
crave it. Yeah, and it feels so good because it's been so cold here. So I'm, I'm trying to walk. I packed on a couple extra pounds over the holidays. So Doesn't look like it. I dog lives three point one miles away from me, so I'm gonna. I actually got dropped off because I had to. We had to drop the kid off at school today. But today I'm gonna walk home and I'm gonna take the long way, nice. take the bike route. So hopefully a five mile walk. How about you, Doug? Yeah, just getting outside in general, and it is a lot more pleasant. And I mean, for people that don't know, and we're going to publish this sometime in the future, so it could be cold again by the time we publish this, but it was, what, in the single digits for several days in a row and more and more snow. So it was kind of, I mean, you didn't want to go outside much. And we have a driveway that's 150 feet, and my husband chose to, to a good thing, to help take care of his mother who has Alzheimer's, which is wonderful. I got stuck with a shovel. Oh, wow. It's very cold. I, I've been to your house, uh, so you don't have a... I admire that you have a shovel. No snowblower? So my husband, like, I'm not the most coordinated person. And so my husband's like, no, don't use a snowblower because he's afraid I'll hurt myself. But man, my back was killing me. You could tell that I am from New York and not Colorado because... I should have screened out that driveway. That That is a big driveway. Uh, did he laugh after that and say, I was just kidding, Diane. You should have totally used a snowblower. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just said, hey, hon, maybe not go away when the, it's so cold out. Yeah. That is, that's huge. We have a tiny little driveway and the snow in the last week was the very fine powdery stuff. So you could, it, it would almost easy. blow away. Yeah. yeah. All right. 